Welcome to the Valleybrook Community Church Podcast, and thank you for joining us online today. You're about to hear a sermon from our current series, Kingdom Culture. We are living in the midst of cultural changes that most of us have never experienced. As a result, we see an ensuing chaos that some have dubbed the culture of outrage. However, as followers of Jesus, we are called to build a kingdom culture. This 12-part message series, Kingdom Culture, is focused on doing God's will to see the culture of the kingdom of God on earth as it is in heaven. To watch any of our previous messages or find all listening platforms, we encourage you to visit www.valleybrook.cc forward slash on demand. Well, good morning again to everybody joining us here on our Granby campus and on our online campus. We're glad you're here. And look, personally, I want to say to you, I'm thankful for you. I'm thankful for you who call Valley Brook your church home and those of you who have been attending recently. I'm thankful for so many reasons. I'm thankful because you partner with us to share the good news with people here in this area and around the world. I'm thankful for you because you come alongside us and you serve God and you serve with hope and the desire to be a fully devoted follower of Jesus. And I'm thankful for all of your sacrifices in the way that you care and you give so freely to advance God's kingdom. Today we're going to be talking about the truth that the kingdom culture, the culture of Jesus Christ's kingdom that he brought to earth and inaugurated, that this culture embraces biblical justice because God is a God of justice. Now, let me just say this. Biblical justice is not necessarily going to line up with the social justice issues of this world. Why? Because the issues of this world, the culture of the world, is not the culture of the kingdom of God. And we're called as followers of Jesus to embrace that kingdom and to embrace biblical justice I thought maybe it would be helpful to, to share a story that helps us understand just what biblical justice is and, and really to get an insight in it because I think for those of us who live in North America, there's sometimes difficulties for us understanding fully the impact of biblical justice. So let me share this story. President Mobutu reigned as the dictator and president of the Democratic Republic of Congo from 1965 to 1997. But after global political changes, Mobutu was forced out of power, and unfortunately the country collapsed and descended into conflict and to chaos. Mark Maynard, a British pastor, tells the story of his good friend Emma, and Emma witnessed many atrocities committed against his friends and his family in that country. He and his family and his three, he and his wife and his three daughters fled east to Uganda on foot. And weeks later, they arrived as refugees with nothing in the world in their possession. After a few months of miserable existence, he walked past a, a local seminary and sensed that the Lord may be calling him to ministry. Now understand, this was a family who was living in one room without any water or any electricity and only enough money to buy a meal to eat, one meal, every two days. Maynell said that one evening they met in the seminary's tiny library and they started talking. And Emma opened his heart and he shared the story of the violence and the injustice that he had witnessed. And he started to weep openly. 
Despite the fact that African men never cry in public, there he was weeping. And through his tears, he said these very sobering words. He said to Mark, he said, you know, Mark, I could never believe the gospel if it weren't for the judgment of God. Because I will never get justice in this world, but I couldn't cope if I was never going to see justice done. Now, Pastor Mark commented, he said, you know, we who live in the Western world often recoil from God's justice for the very simple reason that we've hardly had to suffer injustice. But most people around the globe recognize that God's justice is praiseworthy and great. Of course, his mercy and redemption are even greater, but we need his perfect justice as well. So as we talk about biblical justice, uh, to know the truth of biblical justice, we need to know that it's rooted in the character of God. So what's God's character like? Well, God's character is perfect and good. It's holy and righteous. It's loving and wrathful. Now, that's just a small sample of the attributes of God's character, but these are important attributes when we talk about biblical justice. So, Let's take a moment, and I want to focus on two of those attributes of God's character, his love and his wrath, but doing so, you need to remember this. It's important that we know that God is perfect and good and holy and righteous, and that helps us understand those two opposing attributes of love and wrath. You see, God is perfect in who he is and in everything we need, and everything about good, God is good and there's nothing bad or evil in God. And God is holy, and that means he's set apart from sin and the unholy things in this world, and God is righteous. And that means that God always acts in accordance with what is right, and he himself is the final standard of right. Now, knowing those things helps us understand the love of God and the wrath of God. You see, God is not imperfect. God is not bad. God is not unholy. God is not unrighteous. He's the opposite of all those things. Now, let's talk about love and wrath. The Bible says this. The Bible says that God is love. So we need to embrace that and understand that God is, is love. Wayne Grudem, in his book, Systematic Theology, defines the attribute of God's love as this way, that it's self-giving for the benefit of others. So God loves us by giving all he is to us, all he is to the world for our benefit, not for his benefit. You're familiar with John 3.16. John 3.16 illustrates how God gives of himself for our benefit. Remember it says, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. God gave of himself for the benefit of the world. So what about God's wrath? Truthfully, it's not a topic that we like to talk about, but it shows up in Scripture more than we realize, and probably we tend to ignore it. So think this through. If God's love is, God, if God's love is all that is right and good and all that conforms to his moral character, then it shouldn't be surprising 
that God would hate everything that is opposed to his moral character. So God's wrath is directed at sin. Sin that is in this world. Sin that is even in us. And that wrath illustrates God's holiness and his justice. God's wrath can be defined this way. It's, it means what God intensely hates, and that is sin. That's what the focus of his wrath is. As I said, we tend to think that uh, we pass over God's wrath when we read it in Scripture, and we tend to think it's just an Old Testament thing, but it's not. It's all throughout the New Testament, too. Just a few verses after that famous John three sixteen verse is this verse. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. But whoever rejects the Son will not see life, for God's wrath remains on them. Now, this is important. Understanding that God loves us and wants what is best for us, like his good, perfect, and pleasing will, and his holiness and righteousness, and then knowing how sin can enter into the world and into us and destroy all the good that God wants to do, helps us understand his wrath. And knowing that then helps us understand biblical justice. God loves us and he wants us to live righteous, God-honoring lives. And when we don't, we're not exacting and bringing into this world the justice of God. And he wants us to do that. He loves us. And when we're doing great things, he loves us. And when we're not doing great things, he also loves us. But he can be angry and upset with us. And that's when we experience his wrath. I want to help us see God's justice and how it's part of the culture of the kingdom of God. And I want to give credit where credit is due. Uh, Pastor Tim Keller's writing on biblical justice has really helped me form this message. And I want to talk about four facets of biblical justice that, that he writes about. Here's the first one. Biblical justice is generous. It's generous. So the first facet of biblical justice actually is radical generosity. While secular individualism says that our money belongs to us and socialism says that our money belongs to the state, you know what the Bible says? The Bible says our money belongs to God who entrusts it to us. In Luke chapter 16, Jesus talks about an unwise steward and he calls us to be wise stewards of our wealth. Now, steward's not a word that we use very often, but in biblical terms, a steward was the manager of an estate. And they worked underneath the owner of the estate. So that meant that a steward was both a master of the estate, but also a servant to the owner. And so to be a steward means that on the one hand, our wealth belongs to us, and yet it doesn't belong to us. It belongs to God. Because everything we have comes from God. So, from the Old Testament through the New Testament, we see this idea of radical generosity. When you go into the Law of Moses, the first five books of the Old Testament, you see that God provides for the poor. God provides for the foreigner who lives among us. God provides for the widow. 
and God provides for the orphan. These are four groups of people that were often living on the edge of poverty and on society because of their situations. In the book of Leviticus, we read this. When you reap the harvest of your land, do not reap to the very edges of your field. And do not gather the gleanings of your harvest. Leave them for the poor and for the foreigner residing among you. I am the Lord your God. In another section, this picks up again. When you harvest your grapes, don't go over the vineyard a second time, God's word says. Or pick the grapes that have fallen. Leave them on the ground for the poor and for the foreigner. See how God provides for those. Now, maybe you're familiar with the story of Ruth. You can find it in the book of the Old Testament that's named after her. And Ruth and is the, the main focus of the book. And it tells the story of Ruth and her mother-in-law as they find themselves both widows and they return to Israel. So remember in the big picture, uh, the poor, the foreigners, the widows, and the orphans were living on the edge of survival. And Ruth and her mother-in-law lived at that time in Moab. Moab is a different part of the Middle East. Ruth's mother-in-law had been raised in Israel, but she had moved there when there was a huge famine. And her sons had married, but now Ruth's mother-in-law's husband has died and Ruth's husband had died. And they are both widows. And they decide to go back to Israel where there are relatives. But again, they're living on the edge. Ruth's mother-in-law remembers that the gleanings from the field were available for the poor, the widow, the foreigner. And so she sends Ruth out to the fields. It's harvest time to glean the grain that's been left in the corners of the fields or that's fallen to the ground during the harvest. And as she does so, she actually uh, gets introduced to the owner of the field. This man's name is Boaz. And this is significant because not only are they gleaning, but a relationship starts here. And Ruth and Boaz actually get married. And why I share this story is so, so significant because God's heart is for those who are destitute. And so he wants to help redeem them out of their poverty out of and with generosity. And so Ruth and Boaz get married and they have a child and that child becomes the father of King David. And that's significant because our Messiah, Jesus, is in the family line of King David. So here God uses a widow who was poor and destitute and she comes into the line of David, the family tree line, and she is part of fulfilling the fact that Jesus would be born out of the line of King David. You see how God has such a heart for those who are without. And that's why radical generosity is a part of God's justice. Now last week I, I preached on the idea that the kingdom culture is generous and I shared the parable of the rich fool. This man had a huge harvest and instead of being generous with his harvest that would fill more than the current barns that he had, he actually tore down those barns and built new barns to hold all of his harvest so he could keep it to himself. And in the end of this story, he dies. And the message that Jesus said is that this man and all of us are supposed to be rich toward God. 
Commentators say that being rich toward God means that we lean into our relationship with God. We study his, God, his word, we pray, we, we live out scripture, and we lean into the culture of the kingdom of God. But what I forgot to mention last week and what I want to say today, and it, it speaks exactly to this message about generosity, is a little later in that same chapter, this is what Jesus writes about radical generosity. He says, don't be afraid, little flock, for your father has been pleased to give you the kingdom. Sell your possessions and give to the poor. Provide purses for yourself that will not wear out, a treasure in heaven that will never fail, where no thief can come in and no moths destroy. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Our treasure, our heart is supposed to be with the kingdom of God that Jesus has brought. And so Jesus says, listen, you need to focus on the most important things, and that's being a part of the kingdom of God and helping other people come to faith so that they can be part of the kingdom of God. That's what it means to lay up treasures in heaven, not to store up earthly riches, but spiritual riches. And commentators point out, and this is important for us because Jesus says sell your possessions, but he's not meaning sell all of your possessions, but he is talking about giving sacrificially to care for others. Because this radical generosity comes through all of Scripture, from the Old Testament to the New Testament, and that's part of God's justice. He calls his people to help enact this justice. The second attribute, facet of biblical justice, is human equality. In fact, universal equality. Biblical justice requires that every person be treated according to the same standards and with the same respect, regardless of their class, of their race, of their ethnicity, of their nationality, of their gender, or any other social category. The reality is what we've seen happen in our country this summer about social justice is that People need to be treated equally, and that's what God tells us in Scripture, that we are supposed to treat one another as equals and care for one another. And when that's not happening, that's a biblical justice issue, and we have to recognize that. At the core of this is what God tells us in the very beginning of Scripture, at the very beginning of creation, when, when God creates humankind— he creates us in his image. It's called the imagio Dei, the image of God. We are all made in the image of God, and that means we're all valuable and we're all worthy of love and respect and care, and that needs to be given across all categories in which we sometimes separate humans. In the book of Deuteronomy, we read this. Do not pervert justice or show partiality. Do not accept a bribe, for a bribe blinds the eyes of the wise and it twists the words of the innocents. So Jesus is saying, listen, if you're going to be just, you can't pervert justice. You can't show partiality for one person or another person because of well, their background or their family line or whatever. We're supposed to treat one another equally. And we see that radical equality demonstrated in the way Jesus cared for people. Jesus shocked 
the sensibilities of that day because he received all people and he treated people of all classes with an equal amount of love and respect. He treated the leper the same way he he treated the person who was fully healthy. He treated women the same way that he treated men. And this was an issue in that day because women were not seen as full citizens. They were seen as second-class citizens, but not in Jesus' mind. He treated the foreigner the same way as he treated a Jew. In fact, Jesus treated non-Jews and cared for them and spoke to them in the same way that he cared for those people who were of Jewish descent. That radical acceptance is what he exhorted his disciples then and what he exhorts us today to carry out with one another. Jesus told us that we're supposed to love our neighbor. In the the parable of the Good Samaritan, how does Jesus define a neighbor? He defines a neighbor as the person that we're supposed to give practical, financial, and medical aid to, even if they come from a different religion or a different race or a different culture. He raises the bar for all of us. Both doing justice and loving one's neighbors means treating people of all races, all religions, all social classes with equal dignity and worth. I love the t-shirts that I've been seeing over the past couple years about uh, Jesus' own words. They take uh, Jesus' uh, exhortation to, to love our neighbor as we love ourselves, and they help us remember who our neighbor is. Maybe you've seen them. I saw one recently that said, love thy neighbor, and then it defined who our neighbors were, and it's not an exhaustive list, but it said, love thy rich neighbor, love thy poor neighbor, love thy homeless neighbor. It said, love thy white neighbor, love thy black neighbor, love thy gay neighbor, love thy immigrant neighbor, love thy Jewish neighbor, thy Muslim neighbor, thy Christian neighbor, thy atheist neighbor, thy addicted neighbor, thy Democrat neighbor, thy Republican neighbor, and and it could go on and on. We get the idea. We're supposed to love all people. Part of the the culture of the kingdom of God is loving people the way God loves them. And we know how God has loved us. Embracing God's justice means that we see that universal equality and caring and loving for people is a justice issue because we're supposed to do it the way God does it. Now look, I know that Jesus as the only way to heaven is an exclusive message, but we need to remember this. God's love and his care and his invitation is an inclusive message. Everybody is loved and everyone is invited. And those who are followers of Jesus Christ are supposed to carry that message to the world. That's the justice of God. Here's the third facet of biblical justice. It advocates for the poor. Psalm 41 says this, blessed is the one who considers the poor. Now the word considers means that believers are to pay close attention to the poor, seeking to understand the causes of their condition and spend significant time and energy in changing their life situation. You see, biblical justice wants to see significant, life-changing advocacy for the poor. Look at what it says in Proverbs. 
the righteous care about justice for the poor, but the wicked have no such concern. We as followers of Jesus are supposed to be the righteous, and we're supposed to care about justice for the poor. Let's talk about hospitality. You know, after being invited to have a meal at a Pharisee's home, this is what Jesus said to his host and to everyone who was in the room. He said, when you give a luncheon or a dinner, do not invite your friends, your brothers and sisters, your relatives or your rich neighbors. If you do, they may invite you back and you will be repaid. But when you give a banquet, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed. Although they cannot repay you, you will be repaid at the resurrection of the righteous. Now, Jesus is talking about the final judgment, but he's saying, listen, we're supposed to reach out and care for and advocate for those that are advocated for by God. We're supposed to love them and care for them, whether they can repay us or not, whether they can invite us over for a meal or not. You see, the supreme advocate for the poor is God. And he takes up the cause of the needy and he calls us, followers of Jesus, to do the same. Again, in Proverbs, it says this, do not exploit the poor because they are poor. Do not crush the needy in court. For the Lord will take up their case and will exact life for life. God tells us, that he is going to plead the case for the poor, that he will take care of them. And as followers of Jesus, we are supposed to be a part of that. Remember in the Gospel of Luke, Jesus talks about the poor widow who goes and she wears out a judge by pleading for his help to bring justice in her life. And this is what Jesus says about this. He says, will not God bring about justice for his chosen ones who cry out to him day and night? Will he keep putting them off? I tell you, he will see that they get justice and quickly. And how does he do that? He works through the body of Christ, through us as sons and daughters of our king who have been called to live in his kingdom. That's what biblical justice means for us. Now, the fourth facet of biblical justice is this, that we own mutual responsibility, both corporate and individual. One of the basic definitions of justice is giving people what they are due. Now, we like to say this, you get what you deserve, but we have to ask, are we responsible only for our sins or are we also complicit and thus responsible and even involved in the sins of others as well. When you read through scripture, you will see that yes, there is individual responsibility, but there's also corporate responsibility. The New Testament leaders recognized this corporate responsibility and they actually held the entire Jewish nation responsible for the death of Jesus. Peter said these words to everyone on the day of Pentecost. He said, fellow Israelites, listen to this. Jesus of Nazareth was a man accredited by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs, which God did among you through him as you yourselves know. This man was handed over to you by God's deliberate plan and foreknowledge, and you 
with the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him to the cross. There is always in Scripture this idea that as a community, we are responsible for doing what, we're, what we've done. And so in this case, Peter is saying to all of Jerusalem that you're responsible for Jesus' crucifixion. Now, this doesn't happen everywhere in Scripture, but we see this idea of taking personal responsibility for the actions of the greater community. Ezra and Daniel at times confess sins for the people of Israel that they themselves were not personally responsible for or guilty of. The Bible teaches that corporate responsibility is greater than our individualistic modern Western view of responsibility. There's this idea that we are part of a bigger community. And the Bible teaches that as followers of God, as part of the body of Christ, we have more than a personal responsibility for what we do and what we don't do. We also have a corporate responsibility, and that means that together we maintain responsibility for the community of faith's actions and for its inactions. You see, biblical justice is what God calls us to, and it's very different from the social justice of the world. At times, they will line up, not because biblical justice is conforming to social justice, but because social justice has adopted biblical justice probably without even knowing it. But as followers of Jesus Christ, as part of the kingdom of God, we are called to embrace the biblical justice of God. It's important that we do. I'm going to invite the worship team to come up as I conclude this message. So what do we do with this information about biblical justice? You see, we've learned that biblical justice is a radical generosity that it sees all humans as equal. We've also learned that biblical justice demands that we advocate for the poor and that we see our responsibility as not just an individual responsibility, but a corporate responsibility as we are part of something bigger than ourselves. As followers of Jesus, we take what we have learned and we live it out in this world until the day that we spend forever in the kingdom of God in heaven. But right now, we seek to bring the biblical justice of God into this earthly kingdom. The prophet Micah understood this. As he spoke the very words of God, he said that this is how we are supposed to do what the Lord requires of us. He said, we are to act justly and to love mercy and to walk humbly with our God. So this is how we're supposed to live our lives. To act justly, love mercy, and to walk with God seeking biblical justice in this world. I appreciate the words of Michael Emerson, what, what he says about biblical justice. He talks about the justice that's in our world and the issues of social justice, but this is what he says. Justice without Jesus is just us. As followers of Jesus Christ, we have to embrace our Savior and live out the kind of justice that God wants us to live out, biblical justice. So I want to pray for us. 
that we can lean into this because I believe this is hard for us to wrap our heads around, particularly in North America. Many of us don't experience really strong experiences of injustice. And so we need to ask God to open our hearts and our minds and study God's word and even ask him to open our hearts about it. So let me pray for you. Bow your heads, please. Father, we thank you for your love for us and for the care that you have for us. Lord, we ask that you would work in our hearts and our lives to help us understand your justice more and more and that we would embrace it and that we would live it out in the culture of this kingdom that you've asked us to live out. As your sons and daughters, we want to be responsible for the things that are of your heart and of your mind. So Lord, teach us, guide us, help us be your sons and daughters. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. I invite you to stand as we sing this final song and focus on its words to go out and live what we are supposed to live. Thank you for listening to our podcast. It is our sincere hope that it has blessed you. For more information, visit our website at www.valleybrook.cc.